You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Genesis chapter 16 is where we pick up today. Last week we uh, concluded looking at the covenant established by God in chapter 15. Uh, we saw specifically that Abram's salvation fully rests in the belief that he expressed in God's ability and reliability to do what he had promised to do, even when the natural circumstances around him seemed to indicate otherwise, that, that God was promising a great nation, many descendants from him, even though he and Sarah both were reaching an age where kids were becoming less and less likely. Um, he, he puts his faith and trust in God, and God counts it as righteousness for him. And we talked a little bit last week about what that means specifically. We saw the application from last week being that we're to express belief in God that leads to continued belief in the great promises of God, despite various trials that we may encounter today, believing instead in the better things to come. And we looked specifically at 1 Peter chapter 1 last week, where we are reminded that trials are necessary for us in the testing uh, of our faith, the genuineness of our faith, that, that God oversees those trials, that God sometimes out of necessity, places those trials into our life. And so trials should not deter us from believing and trusting in God's good promises. We come to Genesis chapter 16 today, and we see that on the heels of God making such great promises once again to Abram, demonstrating those promises through the covenant, that there's an element of distrust that follows that ultimately leads to a great debacle in the history of Israel And in the history of the Middle East, it says in Genesis chapter 16, verse one. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Our summary sentence for today. God's call upon believers to express faith in him is oftentimes an attack on our selfish tendencies to want gratification immediately. Meaning that faith is ultimately a lesson in patience. God's call upon believers to express faith in him is oftentimes an attack on our selfish tendencies to want gratification immediately. Meaning that faith is ultimately a lesson in patience. So we talk about these great promises of God. We talk about God's good intent towards believers. Um, and lest we believe that that we are in some ways guaranteed the ultimate fulfillment of those promises. This story serves as an example to us that oftentimes we are called to put faith in God and it has to increase our patience because oftentimes we don't see the fulfillment of those promises immediately. 
Abram and Sarah are, are dealing with that. Um, as we're going to see in the text today, it's been 10 years since they left. 10 years that they've been waiting and anticipating these promises that God has made to them. And they continue to feel like those promises have, have not been fulfilled in their life. Um, and so it's an attack on their tendency to want to see immediate fulfillment to these promises. Um, but what scripture reminds us in Hebrews is that we, we endure in faith and in patience in order to inherit the promises that God gives to us. Um, just some, some introductory thoughts here to Genesis chapter 16. Um, much of what we understand about the Israeli-Arab conflict today flows from the decisions that are made here in this chapter. Okay, so we, we all are familiar with the great conflict in the Middle East, the conflict over the land, conflict of Arab countries against Israel. Most of that conflict stems from what happens here in, in this chapter. The decisions that Abram, Sarah, and Hagar make in this chapter lead to the conflict that's still going on 4,000 years later. It's a reminder to us that sometimes our, our decisions can't be fixed very quickly. I mean, we're 4,000 years after this decision was made, and we're still dealing with the, the ramifications of that decision. In the spirit of all the Back to the Future talk recently, you remember in, in Back to the Future 2 when, when, the, when the doc comes back and says, uh, Marty, we've got to go to the future. We've got to fix something because there's a decision that's made that has huge ramifications for all of your descendants, right? And so he went into the future multiple times and figured out that, that, that all of it could be drawn back to this one incident. And so they go into the future and try to fix that incident. This is where you would want to fix everything that we see in the Middle East today. If we had a time machine, we would go back to this time and we'd sit down with Abram and say, don't make this decision. Don't make this decision to step out in distrust and think that you've got to help God and fix this situation or make this situation happen because it's not happening because the ramifications from this decision are great. All right. So so what we experience today, what we see today can be traced back to this situation. Um, we also know uh, that there are some parallels in this story. Genesis 16 parallels some other accounts that we've already seen. The first account being the fall of man. What we have here in Genesis chapter 16 is real similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 3. We have a man listening to his wife. We have a wife taking something and giving it to her husband. All right, Eve took the fruit, gave to her husband. Uh, the way that Moses writes Genesis chapter 16, it says that um, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian and gave to Abram her husband. We see a passive participation here by the man. And then after all is said and done, we see the blame game ensue. Who's responsible for, for the feelings that are being felt after this situation, and people are passing blame to each other for decisions that they personally made. So there's some parallels in the way that Moses writes Genesis 16 with a situation that we've already seen in Genesis chapter 3. There's also some parallels with what happened in, with Abram and Egypt already. Remember the barrenness of the land, the, the famine led him to go to Egypt. And then uh, some fear ensued in Egypt, and so he gives his wife away to the Egyptian man in hopes of protecting himself. Here in Genesis chapter 16, the, barren, the barrenness of the woman leads to uh, another encounter where now Sarah gives an Egyptian to her husband. 
Um, so the answer to the problem in the in the uh, first passage in Genesis 12, give Sarah to an Egyptian. The answer to the problem here is give an Egyptian to Abram. The consequences of Abram's lack of faith earlier in life continue to trip him up here. You'll remember when we were in Genesis 12, we talked about Hagar uh, being someone that left Egypt with Abram and his family. So Abram goes down there. Uh, the famine drives him down to Egypt. He makes some poor choices there. He inherits both uh, material possessions and servants. Hagar, most likely one of those servants. And so he's still feeling the after effects of some of his sinful distrust in Egypt. Hagar would not be in this situation. Hagar would not be an option for Sarah to turn to had they never gone to Egypt. And so, uh, again, it's a reminder to us that um, oftentimes our, our choices and decisions can't be fixed quickly. We're 4,000 years after this, and we're still trying to fix the, the conflict between Ishmael and Isaac that will ensue. But then also, oftentimes, our decisions in the past will continue to come up and bite us in the future. Um, that we still deal with the natural consequences of sin. Even though God forgives us, the consequences oftentimes are still permitted to play out. All right, so, so in this text, uh, immediately we can see that worldly emotions lead to discontentment here. Worldly emotions lead to discontentment, specifically in the life of Sarah. All right, so just kind of once again setting the context here. God has promised Abram a bunch of great things. Abram, we've already seen, he comes to God in chapter 15. I don't have an heir. Is Eleazar, is, is my head servant that I've, I've sort of adopted as, a, as an heir for me, is he the one that is to get everything that you've promised to me? So, so this is definitely on Abram's mind. He's concerned about the fact that he has not had a child of his own. So we can assume that this conversation has happened between him and his wife. All right. So there's there's some conversing going on. When are we going to have a child? When are we going to have a child? So Abram desperately wants an heir. And I believe Sarah desperately wants to give him one. And so this is a point of contention, most likely in their marriage. It's probably something that was discussed. Maybe at this point is something that they no longer discuss. It's just the elephant in the room. God keeps promising us things and we continue to be just me and you. There's no child coming. And so Sarah begins to really wrestle with this situation and begins to develop uh, a solution to the problem. What we, what we can be reminded of in this passage, first of all, is that God's timing is perfect despite our impatient feelings. God's timing is perfect despite our impatient feelings. You'll remember, we've already discussed, why do Abram and Sarah not have a child now? Because God is waiting for the exact right purpose and time to give them a child. That purpose being, he wants them as good as dead. He wants them as good as dead. He wants to receive all the glory for giving them a child. He wants them to be completely incapable of having children on their own. God's all about perfect timing. If you read in Hebrews, we learn that Moses felt called to lead the children of Israel before the, Mount, the, the burning bush experience on Mount Sinai, right? When he was a leader in Egypt, he was grown and raised in Egypt. The Bible says in Hebrews, he stepped out in faith thinking, I'm going to go down and I'm going to lead the children of Israel out of here. The only problem was that it was 40 years before the 400 promise. So at 360 years, Moses steps out and says, I'm your leader. Let's go. And the people reject him. They criticize him for killing the Egyptian that was beating the Israelite slave. 
Moses has to flee for his life and he's washed up in the desert when the when the burning bush experience happens 40 years later. Why? Because God said, you're not leaving until 400 years. Why? Because the Amorite iniquity has to be completely full so that it makes sense for you to come and take the land from them. So God's all about perfect timing. God hasn't hasn't forgotten that he's made these promises. He has an absolute perfect time to give them the child that he's promised. He wants them as good as dead. And as we're going to learn from this passage, they're not as good as dead yet. One of them is still capable of having children. Okay, so God's timing is per- perfect despite our impatient feelings. Okay, um, what seems to be happening here in Genesis chapter 16 um, is that Sarah is, is approaching that age in her life where she's really concerned about her fertility moving forward. All right, so... Given the fact that ages are different at that time versus where we're at today, she's about 75 years old, okay, and she's very concerned about her fertility, okay? So so she's going through all kinds of physical changes here. Emotions are, are running at an all-time high for her. She knows that God has made promises. She doesn't see fulfillment for those promises. There's a lot of confusion in her mind, and she's greatly concerned about her fertility moving forward. All right, she comes to Abram and is very concerned. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is this is really Sarah kind of throwing up the white flag. It's not up to this point I've been prevented from having children. I think she's really reached a point where she says, I'm not going to have children. I'm at an age now. I, I'm, I'm familiar enough with my body. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And so she's resorting to the only thing she really knows to resort to. We're going to have to go a different route for this because I'm not going to be able to provide this child for you. We learn as this plays out that Abram can still have kids. In chapter 15, um, he's not necessarily questioning God over whether or not he's going to have a kid. He, he still he still has hope that he can have a kid because he comes to God and says, is it Eleazar or am I going to have a child? So so the way that Abram expresses his concern and questions in chapter 15 is not how can I have a child? I've reached an age where I'm incapable of, of, of having a baby. It's are you going to give me a child or is Eleazar my, my servant going to inherit everything? So we believe in chapter 15 that Abram hasn't reached a point where he's wa- he's waving the white flag. Now, we do see that in Genesis 17. When God comes once again to him and Sarah, he starts spouting off ages and says, neither one of us can have children at this point. It's over. Like, we've missed it. Okay? At this point, Abram does not believe yet that he's at the point where he can't have kids. Sarah does. She believes that she's reached that point where she cannot have children. You'll remember Hebrews 11, 12 says that God waited until they were both as good as dead. It's in 1717 where Abram believes they reached that point. It says, then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said to him, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, bear a child? So, so he does get to that point. He's not quite there yet. But in Genesis 16, Sarah has reached that point. She believes that her ability to have children has passed. Sarah's feelings may have stemmed from not knowing with assurance whether she was to be the promised mother of the promised seed. We've talked about this before that God has come specifically to Abram up to this point and promises have been conveyed to Abram up to this point. He's passing these along to his family. 
There's been no guarantee, no assurance offered that Sarah is the one to produce these children that that have been promised to him. Now, the natural understanding, if if somebody comes to you and promises you that you're going to have kids and have an abundance of descendants, your natural understanding would be, oh, me and my wife are going to have children. But as 10 years have passed now and Sarah's at a point where she can't have kids, that the question is now raised probably in both their minds. Did, did we misunderstand God? Is the, is the child going to actually come from Sarah or is it coming from another woman? And, and that's what they're, 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 they're grappling with here in chapter 16. The mother has not been clearly identified yet. I'm sure that Sarah has feelings running through her, her mind that she's holding Abram back from what God wants to do with him. There may have been a, a, a both a good and a bad motive here when she comes and presents this alternative to Abram. I think, I think we want to be sympathetic towards her kind of put ourselves in that position. And we've had couples here that, that have had difficulty having children. And so I know that they can probably uh, feel the tension here between both of these individuals. Why can't we have kids? And, and potentially, while, while one may not be placing the blame on the other, Sarah is probably feeling this, this burden of responsibility. God says you can have kids. I'm the one that seems to be the problem. I can't have kids. And, and, and her identity and her... Um, her feeling of self-worth is probably being challenged here because she's not producing what the almighty God promised should be happening. She probably has some mixtures of good and bad motives here. I think one, she wants to see the promises fulfilled. I think she's buying into what God's telling Abram. I think she longs to see these great promises come to be. But I think there's probably a touch of anger here with God that he's not choosing to use her. See how she comes to Abram here. It says, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. There's probably a touch of resentment and anger towards God in that. I believe God has promised these things, but what's becoming apparent is that they're not promised to me. And so there may be a a, a tension here playing out in her mind of personal glory versus God's glory. She's buying into the fact that God's made promises doesn't sound like I'm going to play the role that I really hope to play in his plans. And that's something that we have to battle in the flesh as well. As we see God's plans unfolding around us, oftentimes we want to be a big part of those plans. We want God to use our abilities and gifts that he's given to us. And there can be some, uh, some jealousy and some selfishness when God's plan is unfolding. And maybe we're not being used in the ways that we think we should be used or could be used. I think there's some tension here for Sarah. She's thinking, why am I not being used here? I understand, Abram, you're telling me that God keeps making these promises. You told me that you were outside the tent the other night and and he's making promises about the stars and your descendants. But I can't have kids anymore. So probably some good motives here. She wants to see God's promises fulfilled. But she's also disappointed that she's not the one to be able to participate in it. And it may also be a ploy by her. To relieve some of the pressure she's put on herself, if if I give you a young woman and you can't have a child with her, then you're the problem, not me. There may have been a ploy there as well with with Sarah to say, okay, I've been I've been feeling all the pressure here. What if it's on you? What what if you're the one that's not fertile? And so she 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 sticks this young woman in front of him and says, here, have her make her your wife. See if you can have a kid with her potentially trying to justify herself in, in, in removing some of the pressure that she's applied to herself. Maybe he's the problem. Maybe I wasn't the problem. Maybe he's the one that can't have children. 
Ultimately, I think what we have here is Sarah feeling that she needs to do what she perceives God is not doing. And we have to remind ourselves that God doesn't need our help. God doesn't rely upon us. God doesn't need us to accomplish his plans. Sarah's emotions lead to worldly reasoning here. Um, we, we talked about this back in, in uh, Genesis 12, that when there was a famine and when there was security issues, Abram's in a land where he's, he's believing that they're going to kill me and take my wife because she's so beautiful. Worldly reasoning set in, as opposed to godly abandonment where they're saying, hey, we're going to do what God wants us to do regardless of what's happening around us. Worldly reasoning set in. Hey, you're actually my sister. We can get away with this. We can just say that you're my sister and nobody kills me. And, and maybe you end up being someone else's wife, but overall we'll both be safe. And so they, they start reasoning from a worldly perspective. Sarah starts to reason from a worldly perspective here. And we're going to see that this was a, uh, a part of their custom, a part of their culture. That when you had a situation like this and a woman couldn't have children... It was not uncommon to bring another woman into into the relationship uh, to bring about children for that man. So there's some some worldly reasoning that sets in here. Her emotions are running wild. She starts to reason from a worldly perspective as opposed to reasoning from God's word. Um, in Genesis 12, we said living a life of faith requires that we retrain our natural fleshly responses of self-preservation when trials come our way. Learning a renewed response of godly abandonment based on his promises of good. So as Christians, we have to retrain ourselves not to default into thinking like the world thinks. All right. If Sarah is getting advice from anybody from Sodom or Gomorrah or any of these other cities surrounding her, the suggestions would have been, let's say she's got a woman's breakfast group that she's going to and she's interacting with her community. The suggestion would have been. Why don't you bring a servant into the relationship? If you can't have children, you want to give children to your husband. This is what we what we do. This is how we handle situations like this. So she may have been receiving worldly advice from the cultural norm of that time because she begins to reason from a worldly perspective. God's timing is perfect despite our impatient feelings. Some implications from this section. First of all, God is the source of life. And God's delays are not always God's denials. She recognizes that God is the source of life here. She says, God, God's involved in my lack of, of being able to bear children. And I believe that God is, is, is overseeing all formations of life. When it comes to human life, I believe that God oversees all of that. God opens and closes wombs. It's according to his timing and it's according to his will. And I think... There's also a component for those that are single in our church. God also oversees the giving of life to you as well. There, there's a timing in, in God's plan as well for, for man and woman to come together to even have children. So we've got some that maybe desire children and don't have children yet. The encouragement is that God oversees that and God's timing is perfect. There are others that desire to have children, but, but aren't even at to the step yet where they can have children because they're not married. And the encouragement as well is that God oversees the formation of life for you as well. That there's perfect timing in God's plan for the union of a man and a woman in a marital relationship. Okay. Sarah acknowledges that, that, that he's the one that's overseeing whether I have kids or not. Secondly, a woman's perceived value should never be tied to her ability to produce children. And I think as husbands, we need to guard and protect our wives against any misplaced identity that they have in our relationship. That we need to be clued into 
comments and, and things that our wives say, and if there's ever a misidentification of their value, may not even be anything that we're doing as husbands, right? It may be that, that, that the woman takes a scenario, takes a situation, feels uh, less than what she's supposed to be because of the circumstances. As, as men, as, as, as husbands, I think we have to guard and protect our wives from ever getting to a point like this where, where they perceive their value to be tied to something like this. And that's not to say that maybe Abram wasn't having these type of conversations with her. But, but I believe that Abram should have been providing reassurance to her. Honey, I know you're not pregnant. I, I know God hasn't given us children yet. But he's going to. He's going to. Constant reassurance to her that her value towards him, that her value in God's plan was never tied to whether she could produce children or not. Sarah seems to be operating from that, that standpoint. That, that I've got to create this scenario that, that I'm wrestling with these emotions and I've got to do something to satisfy what I'm feeling. Okay. Um, so this worldly emotion leads to discontentment. Okay. So she's discontent with having to wait any longer. She's waited 10 years. I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm not going to wait to see how this plays out. It's time for me to step in and do something. Okay. And so that leads to the conversation that she now has with her husband. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. All right. In this next section, what we see is that failed leadership leads to family strife. Failed leadership leads to family strife. Abram yields authority and leadership over family decisions to Sarah. She comes with this suggestion. And in verse two, it says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. <clears throat> as a side note, it's really important. This is, a, this is a strong reminder that being equally yoked in marriage is so important because in that relationship, it's oftentimes hard to deviate when maybe one is leading the other astray. Now, <clears throat> this is this is a this is a a small sampling of, of a bigger relationship, and I think the picture in the New Testament is that this is abnormal for Sarah to function this way. In First Peter chapter three, um, verse five, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Right? So Peter kind of holds Sarah up as this great example of a woman who, who submitted to her husband in a godly way and, and was supportive and was that helpmate that she was created to be. So, so this situation, I believe, is abnormal for her. But it's a good reminder to us that being equally yoked, and Scripture commands us to be, it's so important because... Uh, for those that have maybe been in a relationship before, it can be oftentimes hard to go against the grain when the other spouse is, is not in agreement with God's word and doing things God's way. Okay, so this is a, just a, a good reminder that being equally yoked is important because you want these type of situations to be minimal in your relationships, right? You, you want the, oppor the, 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 the opportunities where you have to make a decision, am I going to yield to my spouse or am I going to yield to God to be minimal? Those shouldn't come up much. Um, you, you would hope that we're both 
intertwined together. We both want what's best for our life through God's will. And so we're constantly yielding to each other and doing the right thing. This is an abnormal situation, I believe, in their relationship where Sarah leads Abram astray in what should have been done in this situation. Up to this point, God had established the pattern of Abram's leadership by communicating with him only concerning the promises. So, um, you know, we, we, you could go back and listen, but we talked about biblical manhood and womanhood and, and husband and wife and how they function together back at the beginning of Genesis. But God is continuing to establish that pattern of, of human uh, relationship and the authority of the male in the, the marital relationship. He's coming to Abram. He's coming to Abram and setting the tone for their relationship. This is what I'm going to do. This is where your family's going. Your family needs to go live here. This is what you need to do when you get there. And he's communicating that to Abram. But here, Abram decides to let Sarah make the future decisions for their family in regards to this situation. Sarah's permitted to make an emotional decisions uh, that are led by the flesh and not by the spirit. And, and this is what's 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 awful on Abram's part is that Abram probably should have perceived the fact that Sarah was operating off of emotion here versus sound wisdom. This was probably a hasty decision. I don't know that Sarah had really thought out this and planned out this. This may have been a spur of the moment. I woke up one morning and I had this great idea. Abram, we should do this. The kind of idea that if you waited 24 hours, you would say, what an awful idea I had yesterday. But it seems like Abram jumps on it and says, whatever you want to do, honey, this is what we'll do. Um, and so she operates off of what, you know, she's coming from the standpoint, I can't give my husband a child. I can't give my husband a child. And so she's trying to reconcile, what do I do with that? Comes up with this idea and, and, and Abram doesn't balk at it at all. He, do, he doesn't hesitate at all. Um, he never questions Sarah. Verse 17, or uh, sorry, back in, in uh, Genesis chapter 16, in verse... Two, it says, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. The only other time this phrase, listen to the voice, is, is worded this way in the Hebrew in another part of Scripture is back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you shall not eat of it, curses the ground because of you. All right, so... I think Moses, because Moses wrote both of these chapters, is, is paralleling the passage. Abram messes up here because he listens to his wife, and his wife is communicating to do things contrary to God's word. Adam fell prey to it. Abram falls prey to it here. He never questions her. He just listens to her. Rather than shepherding his wife, he yields to her. Did he call her to question the consequences of sacrificing their marital intimacy? Like, I don't know if Abram questioned her, is this really what you want to do? How are you going to feel if she does get pregnant? Is that going to make the situation worse? We don't, we don't know, we don't have any insight as to whether there was in-depth conversations about this. Probably not. Maybe, but probably not. What we can say is that they should have happened. There should have been leadership and, and shepherding provided by the husband here. He should have questioned her motives. He should have talked about the consequences, the ramifications. Honey, how are you going to feel? I know you've, I know this has been a weight that you've carried. I know how much you want children. How are you going to feel if you see me having a child with another woman? What's that going to do to our relationship? Because we see that it causes great strife. 
Did they anticipate that? Did they talk about it prior to making this decision? We don't know. Um, Abram's failures here are probably tied to his fleshly wants. I mean, this is a, this is a real difficult situation for Abram here, right? I mean, uh, he, he should have had fleshly restraint put in place. I'm married. I don't step out of that marital relationship. We know that God promises anytime temptation presents itself, there's a way of an escape. But Abram probably was not cued into looking for a way of an escape here. His wife shows up and says, I want you to be with a younger woman and it'll make me happy and our relationship will be better and our marriage will be better. I want you to do this. And so in his flesh, there may not have been a lot of balking at this. He may have said, all right, if this is what you think is what's needed for our marital relationship, then I'm going to act on it. His fleshly desires are enticed very greatly, I imagine, here in this situation. And he moves forward with it. Um, he moves forward with it and, 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 and acts on her request here. Um, let's look a little bit at the uh, arrangement considerations from a natural perspective. We, we've, I've shared with you already, this is culturally acceptable for them. The law of Hammurabi, which was their kind of code of ethics from, uh, from, a, from a cultural standpoint, the law of Hammurabi stated that if a wife has no children, then, then the, the husband should take a concubine, should take another woman. And here's the kicker. If that woman were to have children, then the wife could lay claim upon those children and take those children for herself and make them her children. So that's kind of the, the setting here. Sarah wants Abram to have a child with Hagar. And the anticipation is, is that if she has a child, that child will become mine. That child will become mine. This plays out even further later on in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 30, uh, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. Remember, Rachel's the pretty one. Leah's the one that's, that's not as sightly in, in the eyes of her husband. He ends up with Leah first, has to work harder to get Rachel. Leah's really fertile and having all kinds of kids. Rachel's the favored wife but not having children. So she's distraught. She's envying her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So again, that discussion, God's over the womb, not not me or you. We're not responsible for this. Then he said, here is my servant Bilhah. Or uh, then she said, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf that even I may have children through her. Okay, so this is kind of the cultural norm. This is how they thought about these things. Okay, Rachel says, have children with my servant, and then I get her children. Sarah says, have children with my servant, I'm going to get her children. Okay, so that's her line of thinking here. It was culturally acceptable. Um, the surrogate is treated like a soulless baby machine. Because the law also allowed that if the, if the woman kicked back at all, so if the slave gave any kickback to the arrangement, that she could be stripped of her wifely privileges. Okay, so it does say that he, she was given to him as a wife. But the law permitted that if, if, the, if the wife, if the real wife, felt any kickback from the slave, that she could be returned to slave status immediately and, and stripped of any wifely privileges. She really became a, an, uh, an incubation chamber for the child that the wife couldn't have. And as soon as she produced a child, as soon as they used her for those purposes, she could be discarded. I mean, it sounds like a weird Lifetime movie, right? Like you got this couple that can't have kids. We're going to bring this other woman. And then the woman goes psycho and, and, and wants to keep the child for themselves. Like that's what you kind of have playing out here. It's, it's, a real, it's a real life situation 
two people that are claiming to believe God's promises step out a little bit on those promises and things really go, go awry. Um, and emotions get involved and jealousy gets involved and it leads to conflict that, like I said, we're still experiencing today. Um, the, the arrangement considerations from a biblical perspective. First of all, had they, had they actually sat down and talked about it, this would have been a violation of God's plan to curse the, the hematic line. You remember the blessing was going to come from Shem. Now, we talked about the fact that, that you can't apply the, the curse of Ham to the African American race. Okay? But the Egyptian people come from Ham. So to entertain the idea that God is going to bring the promised seed through a descendant of Ham is contrary to what he's already revealed in this situation. Okay, so had they really planned it out, had it not been a kind of a spur of the moment, wake up one morning, let's do this type of decision, had they really talked about it, they probably would have come around to the fact that Hagar's Egyptian. Like, that's not going to work because God's promised that this has to come through the line of Shem, not the line of Ham. Okay, so... Had they really explored it, they would have realized this was going to go against God's plan um, to bring the promised seed that way. Uh, secondly, like we said, Hagar is treated like a piece of property rather than a valued individual. And this is not on par with what Scripture would say about how she should have been treated. Um, she's most likely the counterpart to Eleazar. Remember in chapter 15, Abram says, Is Eleazar the heir, my best servant? This is, this is Sarai's best servant, Hagar. She's treated like a piece of property in this story rather than a, than a valued individual. Uh, third, this deviates from the natural understanding of the promise. Okay, we said earlier, God comes to you and promises you children. The natural understanding would be my wife is going to be the bearer of these children that God has promised to me. So to, to deviate from that natural understanding... Should have prompted um, Abram to seek God's counsel on this. He sought wisdom regarding Eleazar, right? The adoption option. He, he goes to God and says, hey, I've been thinking that me and Sarah were going to have kids. But I'm starting to wonder, maybe you mean for Eleazar to be the, the adopted kid that gets everything. Is that Should I be thinking that way? What does God say? No, I'm going to give you a kid. You're going to have a child of your own. Now, he doesn't say Sarah. He just says, you're going to have a child of your own. Sarah comes with this idea. We, we can assume that Abram still had um, access to God to go back and say, hey, let me clarify again. We're not going to have an adopted child. But Sarah raises a good point. Maybe, maybe you're wanting me to have a child with another woman. Is that how this is supposed to happen? We can assume then that God would have said, no, no. The natural understanding is the correct understanding. I promised you children with your wife. That's how it's going to happen. He doesn't seek God's counsel on this. I put in my notes, it's always a good idea to pause and consider when our actions would deviate from the norm. Anytime we're looking to act contrary to what the norm would be, it should cause us to pause and to reflect and to seek godly counsel. Anytime we're deviating from the normal process of anything in life, uh, it's probably warrants us stepping back and saying, should we do this? this? This is against what the normal flow would be. Should we do this? Let me see godly counsel on it. And then lastly in this section, God later warns of the dangers that come with an excessive lifestyle. This is kind of the first um, first understanding of polygamy that takes place, at least in the the context of God's people being the one to participate in it. And in Deuteronomy 17 
14. This is when God is giving instructions about Israel setting up a king. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. You see New Testament versions of this when it comes to biblical leadership, right? Uh, A a one-woman man um, whose heart isn't easily turned away. A man who's not given over to the love of money so that his heart's not turned away. God always cautions against excessiveness in life. Abram had his hands full with one wife, right? He had his hands full with one wife. He wasn't doing a great job of shepherding her emotions. He, He doesn't need to take on an additional wife, but that's the steps that he and Sarah take. All right, the implications from this section. Resolving situations in haste without seeking godly counsel often leads to problems that are not easily solvable. Resolving situations in haste without seeking godly counsel often leads to problems that are not easily solvable. We get godly counsel through his word, but in areas where we feel like scripture is silent, it's a great opportunity to lean on those that have gone before us and have experienced things that we don't want to experience, right? So anytime we're faced with a decision, hasty decisions oftentimes lead to to problems that aren't easily solvable. It's always wise to seek godly counsel through his word, through other people. I mentioned the 24-hour rule. Some of the worst decisions possible can be avoided by not acting immediately on them. Right. Um, We have a policy at our school that if you get a contentious email from a from a parent, you need to take 24 hours before you respond to it, because more than likely the response you would have given immediately will vary greatly from the one you give 24 hours later. And you'll save yourself a lot of problems (laughs) because you send an email right after you get a contentious email from a parent. And more than likely, you're going to send five more that day because it's going to be firing back and forth. Wait 24 hours. They're calmed down. You're calmed down. The solution is, is far more clear. Okay, they make a hasty decision here. Um, The implication is that it plays out. She comes, makes the makes the suggestion. Abram says, "Okay," and 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 it happens Um, that there's not a lot of uh, consultation that takes place here. All right. And then the last section, personal pride leads to harsh treatment. Personal pride leads to harsh treatment. All right. So the suggestions made. Abram acts upon the suggestion, and she gets pregnant. In verse 4, he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress, her mistress being Sarah. Hagar's pride leads to contempt. The narrator validates that Hagar, or Hagar was not innocent. Okay, Sarah doesn't make this up. Okay, you could read the text and maybe speculate, oh, Sarah's mad that this didn't play out the way that she wanted and that her emotions weren't satisfied. And so she makes this up and comes to Abram and says, Hagar's a big jerk. She's prideful. We need to get rid of her. The implication from the text, the narrator, Moses says, when she conceived, she looked with contempt on Sarah. So so Hagar does experience pride in this situation. She probably, and I, and I put in my notes, um, 
she probably became proud in her pregnancy because she sees that she can give Abram what Sarah can't. I mean, it's clear to everybody now. Sarah's the problem, not Abram. If anybody can't have kids, it's Sarah, not Abram. Now, Hagar has probably seen some of their conversations. She's probably aware of the promises. She's probably not a believer at this point. And so she, in the situation, looks at it and says, I'm a better woman than Sarah. All these, all this talk about promises and descendants, it's me. I'm the one. I'm the one that's going to give this man everything that this God has promised to him and not her, not my boss, not the lady that I'm supposed to submit to. And there's some level of contempt that, that, that arises here between her and, um, and Sarah and Hagar initiates some of this. She probably now assumes that she's going to inherit the blessing because she's the one that's been able to give Abram the children. Abram has a level of pride here, though. His pride leads to laziness. All right, so Sarah gets frustrated here. She comes to Abram and says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. All right, so Sarah kind of plays the card of, Hagar is not doing what she's supposed to be doing. She's supposed to be a soulless baby machine. She's supposed to come in here, get pregnant, give up the baby, and go away. And she's not doing that. She's making my life awful. She's rubbing it in. You know, you kind of get this picture that as Hagar's doing her job and and Sarah's watching her do her job, she's just rubbing her belly and kind of smiling and winking at her and saying, yep, that's right, that's right. Sarah gets really frustrated about it. She gets really frustrated about it, and, and, and her emotions are, are again, not satisfied, and now they're going in a totally different direction. I'm not happy with the way this has played out. And she goes and complains to Abram and says, fix this, do something with this. Abram probably realizes, I messed up. <laughs> like, this was not a good suggestion. This is causing more problems than it should have. I should have handled this differently before. But he's lazy, and he lets his laziness continue here. And he says, do whatever you want to with her. Your servants in your power do to her as you please. He should have shouldered some of the blame here. He permitted the situation to happen. He should have reassured Sarah of his love for her. This is where he needs to come in as a shepherd and say, doesn't matter if she can have kids and you can't. You're my wife. You're the object of my love. We don't, we don't see that type of tender care coming from Abram here. He says, all right, go do whatever, to, whatever you want to with her. He should have accepted responsibility for the situation. He should have made sure that Hagar was dealt kindly with because she's his wife now. Right? She, she was given to him as a wife, his second wife, but she should have had some type of protection from Abram as his wife. And he doesn't give her any of that. So he, let, he says, do whatever you want to. Sarah's pride leads to bitterness. Sarah's pride leads to bitterness. Sarai was primed to see any negative backlash from, Hag- from Hagar. So Hagar may not have had to may not have had to do a whole lot to entice Sarah's response. I mean, I mean, Sarah's in a situation where she's primed to be frustrated. All right. She's she's gone years without being able to have a child. This woman comes in. She's a foreigner. She comes in. and, and, And the implication is immediately like the first night she gets pregnant. And so this deflates Sarah even more. If she was if she was identifying her value with her ability to have children, she's really feeling uh, a lack of value here because this woman comes in and, and on the first opportunity gets pregnant. 
And so she's frustrated. She, she's distraught. And so she lashes out at Hagar. The cultural norm was to punish the concubine who tried to gain equal status with the true wife. The wording for how Sarah treats Hagar is identical to how the Egyptians treat the Israelites. This is harsh treatment that she gives to Hagar. It says in verse 6, But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. In 1513, you remember the promise of Abram's descendants being in slavery. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Same word, same Hebrew word. So this is a harsh treatment by Sarai towards Hagar. This is a case where the response did not fit the offense. Okay, so Hagar's culpable here. Hagar does something that's not right. But the response takes it to a whole different level. I have this conversation with middle school kids all the time. Um, it's, it's a lot of times the kid that responds to the other kid that gets into greater trouble because the response doesn't match the original offense. Okay? Um, so-and-so said something to me. Well, what did you do? I punched him in the face. Okay, you're going to be suspended. I'm going to deal with this kid and tell him not to say stuff like that anymore. Well, what? Like he started it. He started it. Your retaliation does not match what he started it with. And, and sometimes kids don't connect the fact that punching the kid uh, doesn't, they don't get the fact that it doesn't warrant the same type of punishment. This is what happens here. Hagar does something. She, she's not innocent in this situation. She's not the innocent Egyptian girl that gets banished and, and was doing everything right. But the, the response that she gets from Sarah is not appropriate. It's harsh treatment. And Sarah's taken out all of her feelings and emotions on this girl who doesn't deserve it. She, she doesn't warrant it. I think what's tragic here is that Hagar is left with a poor definition of Christianity based on two Christians behaving poorly. Remember, she's, she's brought into this. Um, and, and the implication here, she's brought into this relationship because they went down to Egypt and picked her up. As agents of blessing, and that's what we are as Abram's descendants, we're supposed to be a blessing to the other nations, we're supposed to be a blessing to the world. As agents of blessing, others should benefit from our presence and interaction rather than feeling a need to flee from us. People that we come in contact with at the workplace, in our neighborhoods, they should benefit from our interaction. They shouldn't try to hide from us. They shouldn't try to avoid us. We shouldn't have relationships in our life where people try to avoid us because of the poor interaction that we have with them. Hagar leaves, she flees, and her understanding of the Yahweh God that Abram's talked about is this poor interaction that she's received from Abram and Sarah. I've been mistreated. I didn't get asked to do this. I was forced to do this with her husband. Now she's mad at me. Yeah, I probably rubbed it in a little bit, but how I got treated afterwards, not uh, not to the same level. And she she flees, assumingly fearing for her life. As agents of blessing, we should be a benefit to those around us. And so we kind of end the story here today, because um, this is as far as I wanted to get. We kind of end here, and we're going to discuss how this plays out, because God steps in and treats her the way that she should have been treated by Abram and Sarah. Okay? Um, but the application for us up to this point 
is that as Christians, we must embrace the journey of faith, realizing that patient endurance is the key to eternal joy. All right, so we pause here in the story. We take a break until next week. But the application for us up to this point is found in Hebrews six twelve. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The, the Christian life is a, is a journey. It's not a sprint. It, it's, a, it's a life that requires endurance that doesn't always yield immediate results. We can't, we can't follow Christ as long as he's yielding results to us. As long as he's fulfilling promises on our timing and in the ways that we want him to. God's silent more than he's vocal when we consider all of history. Right? We have a collection, a book, a collection of times when God stepped into human history and communicated and revealed things. But in contrast to all the other days where he doesn't do those things, his silence far outweighs the times when he's vocal. There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of patience required in following Christ. Abram and Sarah demonstrate a lack of patience here. That they grow weary. Now they're old, but they've only been doing it for 10 years as far as following this God. Okay, so in, in the grand scheme of things, these aren't people that have been laboring for decades and are frustrated with God's lack of involvement in their life. It's been 10 years. Now, 10 years is a long time, but it's only been 10 years, and, and then they're growing impatient with, with how God's fulfilling promises. Um, so I wanted, I wanted to encourage you this morning with, with the idea here from Hebrews that patience is what defines our faith. It needs to define our faith. Um, going back to our summary sentence for today. God's call upon believers to express faith in him is oftentimes an attack on our selfish tendencies to want gratification immediately, meaning that faith is ultimately a lesson in patience. Okay, so from from the day we're born and, and, and we see this most clearly in our children, they want immediate gratification. They don't understand the concept of waiting. They have to learn those concepts. But even when we get to this age, we're still learning these concepts of having to wait upon the Lord, um, having to wait upon his good attempt. Having to wait for things to unfold so that we can see his good intent. Having to understand that trials are good for us. That they are necessary for us at times. Um, and they shouldn't cause us to, to sway or to distrust or, or to feel the need to work out our own good intent in that situation. That we can wait upon God to work that good intent for us. Um, Christ sets the example for us in his life. Um, he endures to the very end. He sets that example for us as well that we're to endure until the very end as well too. We'll pick up here next week and kind of see how this story unfolds. There's a great interaction between Hagar and God um, and how he steps in and how she begins to see him for who he truly is. Up to this point, she's probably been basing it off of what she's seen in the life of Abram and his wife and gets a pretty distorted picture. Thankfully, God intervenes and, and, and treats her in a way that, um, that she deserved to be treated and sets a good example for us as well and how to understand the remainder of the story. And so we'll look at that. Uh, more in depth next week. Let's pray together. God, we we come to you today and, and we do praise you and thank you uh, for your blessings and how you're working in our life. God, I pray that this story would 
uh, would challenge us this week. Um, God, we're subjected to the same human emotions that Abram and Sarah had. And Father, if we're not careful, we will fall prey to reasoning from a worldly perspective on how to handle those emotions. And God, we want to be subjected to your word. We want to be guided by godly counsel. We want to protect ourselves from, from making decisions that would deviate from the norm. God, we want to follow you faithfully. We want to trust in your good promises. And in the midst of trials, in the midst of feeling like we aren't hearing from you, in the midst of feeling like your promises aren't being fulfilled in our life, Father, we're asking for increased trust during those times to protect us from making bad decisions. God, I pray that this story would, would be an encouragement to us. That sometimes the answer is right in front of us, and when we can't see it clearly, it may involve us bringing somebody else into the picture to help us see it clearly. God, would we, would we instead, uh, in Abram's situation, be one that would seek out a Melchizedek to, to seek insight and advice from, rather than acting on our own accord? Father, I pray that you'd guard and protect our people. Um, Father, I pray for, um, for our singles that, that long and desire, uh, in the same way that Sarah desired, to have children and to have a family. Um, Father, that you would, in your own perfect timing and according to your will, uh, bring that uh, into being for them. God, I pray that you'd teach them contentment and patience in the meantime. Father, they would rely upon you for the strength that they need, that uh, their emotions and desires that they have would be quieted until the appropriate time. God, I pray that in the meantime they would serve you faithfully and, and take advantage of the unique opportunities provided for a single individual following you. God, I pray for our, our married couples, those uh, without children right now that, that are looking forward to the day that they have children added to their family. God, I pray that you would have them uh, understand contentment in the meantime. Um, Father, I pray that you would bring children according to your desires and timing. And Father, I pray that if, if we have couples in our church that never experience the joy of children, that neither would find their value and their ability to produce children. God, I pray that we would be reminded of our, our, um, our being created in your image. God, I pray that we would be reminded of the greater rewards that are to come than anything this world has to offer, including children. God, you've reminded us all through Hebrews that, um, that the, the things that we enjoy here are temporary. Um, and that we can make sacrifices here knowing that the, the reward to come is far greater. Father, for the couples that you have blessed with children, I pray that you would give deep insight and wisdom into knowing how to raise those children to be surrendered to the gospel, to be followers of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you oversee life and that you open and close the womb. And God, we thank you for the blessings where you have opened the womb in our church and, and people are having kids. God, we pray for your glory in, in all situations, in the lives of our single people, in the lives of our married couples without children, in the lives of those that have children. Father, we pray that each individual in their own circumstance with the things that they face would bring you honor and glory in all that they say and do. Help us to be agents of blessing this week with those that we interact with, that people would be blessed by our presence and our interaction. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.